You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson and we've got a different format here today. We're not in the studio with David. I'm out at the site of the old Hazelwood brown coal generator, which is long gone and there's not much, there's hardly anything to say that there was a brown coal generator here, but what there is here now is a big battery, which was formally commissioned uh, today on Wednesday. And I guess it's notable because it is the first coal site or the coal power station site that's been that's transitioned to a big battery storage and of course it won't be the last because there's probably around about a dozen big coal generator sites which are going to have batteries which are going to start building or wait until those coal-fired power stations close down and gas stations too. And joining me um, on this podcast, we'll get back to David later on, we'll do a top and tail and discuss the news um, later on in part two of this podcast but in this first I'm delighted to welcome sitting next to me just out the, of the cold wind on a very cold day in the Latrobe Valley is Daniel Burrows, the um, Chief Investment Officer and the Head of Asia Pacific for Ecu Energy. And have I got that right, Daniel? You have, Giles, and uh, thank you for scouting out a warm spot um, here down on uh, the Hazelwood site. You've done, a, you've done a great job to find a quiet spot and a warm spot. <laughs> well, look, I mean, I think I've done pretty well because, look, I understand that this is, this is the first um, big battery built at a coal-fired power station site, but it hasn't been easy. You've had a few sort of challenges in building this thing, and I think one of the reasons was the weather. <laughs> Well, that's, that's absolutely the case. Um, look, we're partnering here with um, Engie, who obviously own the broader site, um, and Fluence is our technology supplier here. And um, what I can say with Fluence, um, our partners here, is um, their product and the technology um, has been really good, and we've been really pleased with their safe delivery. Um, but we did encounter um, a number of challenges um, on civils, um, and I suppose just the simple stuff in getting us out of the ground initially. Um, but we've been um, pretty pleased with the product um, that's um, being commissioned here today. One of the reasons big batteries being built at sites of coal-fired power stations and existing gas-fired power stations, we've seen that in South Australia and we'll see it in other places, we've seen it in Kunana in Western Australia, is because there's existing infrastructure. There's switchyards, there's substations, there's power lines, of course. But have you found actually just, you know, um, you know, just the actual building, what are the challenges and the benefits of actually building at a site like this? Yeah, well, I think if we start with um, the electrical infrastructure, the Hazelwood coal-fired power station um, was supplying about 1.6 gigawatts um, back in the day. Um, And we think there's probably close to a gigawatt um, that it could handle of storage here. So we've got 150 megawatts. What we're able to do is leverage that existing infrastructure um, and then um, get power back into the grid from the location. So that helps with the investment case and it helps with the capital cost of the, uh, the projects first and foremost. Um, some of the other benefits we've found on site with the rehabilitation site um, and the quality of NG and their focus on safety as well, what we have seen with new technology deployment is a really high level of safety standards on the site and that's been one of um, the positives at building it, um, a site of uh, a former coal-fired power station. Mm. 
I mean, look, um, battery, this, this is my first big battery storage um, I've actually visited. I was actually at the opening of Hornsdale, but we were basically only sort of ushered out of the bus into the marquee and back again because of the security around Elon Musk. So we didn't actually get close to a battery. Having got close to this one, I've got to say, it doesn't look like a solar farm, but in the sense of a solar farm, it's just replicated modules. This kind of looks very similar. It's just a lot of sort of cases and containers and things like that. Aesthetically, it's probably not pl very pleasing. But look, can you just sort of tell us what we can see here and sort of describe the scene? I, I just see lots of containers and wires, and I can see a substation. But see if you can describe it to our audience. Yeah, so if we, if we take it at its most ba basic level, we've got the battery cubes, which then roll up into the inverters, which then roll up into the medium voltage transformers and then into the high voltage transformer. So one of the, the neat things about battery energy storage is it fits into a relatively small footprint um, and it is modular in how you can put it together, which, which also helps And that one thing I think we all know about the energy transition is it's going to be complex, things are going to be changed. So that ability to be able to make those changes in the future to support the grid are important. And um, that's interesting what you say about modular because you can quite readily add to the size of this battery. You've started off at 150 megawatts of capacity in one hour of storage. So tell us how you actually landed at that particular number, that particular configuration. Yeah, so within um, the team on the EQ Energy side, um, we have um, a number of models, codes, um, and I suppose technical capability, which helps us start with um, what do we think is the right technical configuration um, at a connection point, and what types of services um, can we provide from that connection point. Um, we arrived at 150 megawatt one hour and then have uniquely designed the site so that it is expandable where we can add duration without importantly having to reopen the GPS and the grid connection process. Um, and we can do it relatively quickly within our permitted footprint here on the site. So my understanding is then you can, your 150 megawatts uh, one hour storage now, you can throw another one hour of storage on this site quite easily? Absolutely, and that's the plan. And what, why would you do that? Because the arbitrage market or the actual sort of time shifting of energy becomes more important than the grid services market, which is what I understand you're essentially playing in initially? That's right. I think over time, as we see um, the duration of battery energy storage um, extending, we probably see the market today in the two to four hour um, range, um, but we see that extending out to eight hours. And I think um, the energy transition is going to need a number of different technologies. Um, utility scale storage has an important, important role to play um, in that intraday time shifting. I'm fascinated by this eight-hour um, storage battery and, and, and sort, of, sort of diverting away from this battery at the moment. We've seen the first contract awarded in New South Wales for an eight-hour battery, RWE. I'm just sort of struggling and other people are just wondering, well, how does that work? Is that because basically you need a contract to actually sort of time shift that energy or that market will just sort of emerge as part of the, just the overall energy market as more sort of baseload power stations retire? Um, well, I, I wasn't involved in that one, so I can't comment on the specifics, but what I can say in our portfolio is um, every opportunity and every connection point has its own use case. Um, different things will work in different locations. The way we look at it at EQ Energy is we look at what types of contracted revenues do we feel we are either supporting up front or that we're underwriting to, um, and then we craft a system that we think is providing the most valuable services at that point in the grid. So, so tell me sort of the, the thinking behind the Hazelwood battery, because you've said it's the first uh, big battery that's been sort of privately funded and by that I understand that you mean it hasn't received any government contracts or government funding through the CFC or ARENA. Um, why didn't it and does that mean then that battery storage can sort of stand on its own without that sort of particular funding or what is it the nature of the market that you've attacked that makes it worthwhile for you? 
So the battery energy storage um, system here today has been funded by EQ Energy um, and, uh, and NG. So it's been 100% funded by private, uh, private capital to date. Um, as we put the project together, it's been carefully put together with the principles of project finance. And that means that over time, the system will be able to support project finance debt to drive down the cost of capital as we expand the system. It's also been put together in a way where we can contract um, with retailers, with transmission service operators, um, and with government to provide those valuable energy uh, uh, services to, to our mm. grid. So when, when we look at the energy storage system that we've delivered here today, the way we look at the investment case around it is we've formed a view that we're highly confident in the different types of revenue contracts that we're underwriting to. Um, and if we were to have a look at, say, Range Bank BESS, um, which we're doing in partnership with Shell, that has a 20-year contract um, on that uh, project with Shell Energy. Um, and if we have a look at the Canberra Big Battery, um, that's got a 15-year revenue swap um, with the ACT government. So what we're seeing in the Australian market um, is uh, a deepening of sophistication um, and different types of revenue contracts that are becoming available for energy storage systems. Um, and we think that looks a lot like long-term infrastructure. Um, and ultimately, we think if we put the projects together in a way where they can support the lowest cost of capital, um, that should drive um, the most cost-effective energy prices for the end energy user. Mm. And we'll get to the range bank and the capital big battery uh, or the big Canberra battery um, um, soon. But just on, just on this one, I, mean, I understand that you could actually expand this to 800 megawatts and um, I suppose multiple hours of storage. What might be the trigger points for do actually doing that? I think um, the expansion will be a function of the different types of revenue contracts that um, we see emerging. Um, if we look at the market, there will be contracts um, with retailers to support them in supplying long-term green energy to their customers. There'll be transmission service contracts to provide um, services to the grid to ensure that it operates safely and reliably. We're starting to see those with system strength, inertia, um, black start style contracts. Um, the other thing that is also interesting is transmission is absolutely required to support the energy transition. Um, and now that's getting our high quality renewable resources from where they are um, into, the into the load centres. But the other interesting thing that energy storage can do is um, participate in support charges in the network um, where they can provide services to the network that provides them more time to make decisions on infilling um, and spending money on the transmission system. Let's talk about some of those other batteries then. You've got two other contracts, declared contracts. In fact, my understanding is you're building a portfolio of about half a dozen different batteries, but you're not telling us about half of them, uh, which is a shame, but you can do this on this podcast if you feel like it. But look, the two that you have actually announced, let's go to Range Bank first. Um, much bigger than this, 200 megawatts, 400 megawatt hours, or two hours of storage. You're doing it with Shell. It's a two hours. It's a 20-year contract, which seems extraordinary. Um, I didn't know that batteries lasted that long. So uh, at EQ Energy, we've got our first gigawatt hour um, in delivery um, in Australia. And the Range Bank BESS is a 200 megawatt, 400 megawatt hour battery. Um, it's located in Cranbourne here in Victoria as well. Um, and we've, uh, we're doing that in partnership with Shell. Um, now, that project um, is supported by an offtake, a physical offtake um, from Shell um, Energy. And we've put that project together over a number of um, years and we've developed, developed it specifically with the principles of project finance um, in mind. So what we're able to do with that project is secure the land, handle the permitting, handle the grids, and then contract for the system and contract um, with our partner um, in Shell at the same time. And we did that in partnership with Shell with the view 
to really optimising the cost of capital that could support that system. Um, now, we're building that project again, um, and that project is supported um, by technical design and also warranties that support that 20-year offtake um, and a project finance debt facility that, uh, that matches uh, the, quality of, um, the quality of that project. So why does Shell want a battery? Uh, well, that's, uh, that's one for, for Shell to answer, but I think um, if you have a look at what they've said publicly, um, they're looking at um, selling clean energy um, to their customers um, and looking to provide longer-term contracts. So, so it's basically be a, being the ability to provide sort of firming products to their, um, you know, green firming products to their customers? Correct, that's right. So at EQ Energy, we, we have no plans to be a retailer, um, but we see transmission service operators and retailers as, as our customers where we're able to supply that capacity to them um, at cost competitive rates, which um, helps then then on-sell green energy to the end customer. Let's talk about the big the, the Canberra battery. This is a, um, an ACT government mandate and they've sort of moved beyond 100% renewables and now looking sort of quite deep in battery storage. They've got the Queanbeyan battery, which is a small one. The, um, the Neoen battery is probably going to be um, commissioned later on this year. Um, yours is a very big battery, 250, megawatt, 250 megawatts, 500 megawatt hours. Um, what's its role going to be? So that was um, that was one the whole team was really uh, proud of um, winning, and it was it was a really good day to be there with the chief minister um, as we announced that one. But that was 250 megawatt, 500 megawatt hour um, battery energy storage system, and um, that will power about one third of Canberra for two hours at peak times. Um, so it was an important part of the initiative um, in the ACT. Um, to one, shore up the grid, um, and to help them hit their net zero ambition, which is by 2045, so it's faster um, faster than some others. So um, we were really pleased to be partnering with government um, on the Canberra Big Battery. Um, what we're particularly proud of is um, Chief Minister um, is on the record for saying that it's an NPV positive project um, uh, from uh, the Territory's perspective. Um, our our modelling suggested the same. Um, now, what, what, what does that actually mean? It means it should be financially positive for the taxpayer and therefore the end energy user. So um, at, at EQ Energy, um, that is one thing that we think about continually is how are we providing safe, secure and reliable energy in the most cost effective way for the end energy users. So to be partnering with government in a way that is um, in, NP, NPV positive um, was really pleasing and a proud moment for the team. It's an interesting financial arrangement you've got there with the ACT government. They're actually, um, they will be providing you with a, they're paying you a fee and an annual, um, but you've got a revenue sharing agreement. Now you haven't actually released any of the details of this, which is highly disappointing because we've seen lots of sort of, you know, quite open sort of, you know, pricing from all the other ones. I'm not too sure why that is. Perhaps you can explain why that is. But my understanding that the idea behind this is that if you can show a, a bank here we've got this contract with this government, it's over 15 years or 20 years or whatever, it gives some guaranteed rate of return, that lowers the cost of finance and then you can just sort of re return the favour to the, the government by sharing the profits. Yeah, so the, the, the arrangement with the ACT government is a 15 year revenue swap. So we swap half of um, the revenue we generate um, from the system for fixed quarterly payments um, escalating at um, CPI. So it's a financial derivative, um, unlike the arrangement with Shell where they will um, be physically responsible for um, trading the asset. So with the ACT government, um, what we found was um, uh, I think their team used their procurement capability well and had a deep understanding of markets. 
um, in delivering uh, in delivering that arrangement. Now, the terms, um, the precise terms, remain commercial in confidence at the moment because we still remain in procurement for the system, um, and the full detail will, will obviously come out um, come out in time. Um, okay, and, and when will that battery be built? Um, so we're looking to um, start constructing that battery midway through next year, um, and that will probably be a 12 to 18 month construction program, um, depending on a couple of decisions we make over the next six months. Okay, and uh, you're, you've chosen, I think, uh, Fluence um, for this particular battery project. I think I'm right in thinking that Fluence is also the um, going to be doing the Range Bank project. So um, are you sort of open to sort of different? I mean, do you sort of put that to tender each time? Or how does that work? Look, we're um, we're technology ag- agnostic, um, and um, we're happy to work with. With um, um, all sorts of different technology uh, suppliers, um, we are working with other suppliers offshore, um, and we we will work with other suppliers here in Australia as well. Um, to date, um, Fluence is with us on Hazelwood, and they're also working with us on the Range Bank Bess. Um, we've been impressed with the quality of their system, um, in particular their focus on fire safety. Um, I think they've done a lot of really good work, um, good work around that. Um, the Canberra Big Battery, we're still in the process of um, making um, a final decision around which technology we go with on uh, on that one and um, we'll have more to say on that in the future. And so um, as you're sort of rolling out your battery portfolio and obviously you want to sort of, you know, invest in sort of the battery markets, um, what are the sort of policy or market design issues that you need to see achieved or decided on to sort of allow this to sort of continue? So, um, look, one of, one of the things with, with EQ Energy, we're a global energy storage specialist. So we focused only on energy storage and everyone in our business is thinking about how do we deliver safe, secure, reliable energy every day. Um, the global nature of the business is really important as well because that provides a level of diversity of revenues, of climate patterns um, and of different, uh, different markets that we operate in. In Australia, if I was to bring it down to what we're seeing locally in Australia and contextualise it with what we're seeing globally, we're seeing an increased level of urgency from governments around the world and we're seeing the same thing here in Australia. What we do see in Australia um, is it gets a lot of, and disproportionate disproportionate attention um, in the international market because what we have is a high degree of renewable energy penetration, a high degree of distributed energy in our system, and we have a long interconnected grid. Um, Now, when you couple the physical characteristics with our grid with a deregulated um, energy market, um, we do get disproportionate um, attention here in Australia. I think the other thing that we've seen in Australia is that the network service operators um, are relying on battery energy storage. We're increasingly seeing procurement for network services and we are increasingly seeing um, government providing price price signals um, as to where they would like to see, um, see storage go. So I think in Australia, the energy transition is going to be complex. I think that complexity is a global phenomenon and what we are seeing is an increased urgency um, and an increased sophistication um, in the conversations we're having in the market. There's a lot of talk around at the moment because of the transmission delays and the fact that we haven't seen any new investment I think in the first first quarter according to the Clean Energy Council assessment. I'm not too sure if that's quite right but anyway there's been a lot of people sort of saying oh there's no way we're going to reach 80% renewables by 2030 or it's just going to be too hard. I mean what's your view on that. I mean, obviously, I think battery storage can probably play a key role in actually freeing up that investment and making sure that those wind and solar can be connected, even if the transmission is delayed. Yeah, like uh, the energy transition will be complex and it's going to need a number of different technologies to come together and be well orchestrated to support the transition. Um, Our focus in terms of the energy storage systems that we're delivering is very much a bottom-up one where we're looking at 
each um, each business case um, on its own and looking at how do we optimise around that opportunity to support the trans the transmission. But I think the task in front of us all is immense um, and what we've chosen is to have a very specific and niche business model which we think allows us to disproportionately contribute to the transition. And what other markets um, take your interest? I think I've seen a few LinkedIn posts from Taiwan, so that's obviously one market. Um, um, why Taiwan and, and, and what else are you looking at? Yeah, well, I think um, the, the business today, we have operations in the UK, Japan, Taiwan um, and Australia, and we are looking at um, other markets as well. But they're markets where we have um, people um, and secured pipeline today. Um, I would say um, Japan is probably um, the market that um, we're most focused on in the Asia-Pacific region. I think in Japan, there are a lot of similarities with Australia. It's the fourth largest energy market in the world. Um, it has a long grid and its islands are interconnected. And it also has offshore wind and solar connecting at the edge of the grid. So in some respects, it looks a bit like Queensland and South Australia, if you were to make an, uh, an Australian analogy. But um, the government there um, uh, will be tendering for 20-year capacity contracts, um, of which storage will be eligible for for the first time this, this year. So we're seeing um, uh, some uh, really positive movement um, in Japan, and it does echo, um, I suppose, some of what we also saw in solar over the last decade with the feed-in tariffs initially stimulating the market, creating that market, um, bringing supplies into that market. So um, Japan's very much a focus for us um, in the Asia-Pacific region. And just maybe finally, just on price of battery storage, I mean, you've obviously been looking at this project, you've got other projects in the pipeline. We've heard talk from other um, um, sort of developers that um, prices at least went up initially. I think they're coming, softening down. Um, what have you observed and what do you predict? So we've, we've seen prices move around significantly. Um, from the time we made the final investment decision on Hazelwood um, to where we are today, we've probably seen peak to trough, close to 50% movements in price. Mm. Um, now that's a combination of commodity pricing, but I think the bigger discussion point is more on supply chain um, and procurement in that systems are now taking longer to deliver. And we're talking about things like balance of plant, managing your civils well, um, if we look at long lead time items today, it's probably inverters and medium voltage um, transformers. So when you add um, six months to a construction timeframe, um, that adds to the cost of the overall project in terms of the capital, um, capital return. Um, lithium pricing has moderated, um, but it's difficult to call those markets. Um, one thing we are a patient risk managers, and I think that's something we've taken with us um, as we've um, carved the business out of um, Macquarie. So we don't look to take views on commodity markets. What we look at is through the development phase is how do you retire risks um, as sensibly as possible um, and create the right project at a final investment decision that should support the lowest cost of capital. Mm. And so what, what is your ultimate target, say in Australia or around the world in terms of sort of capacity? I mean, do you have a little, is there a target? Um, so we've got um, a big ambition within the team, and one thing we've um, we've focused on is we've got our first gigawatt hour um, in in delivery um, in Australia, and our, our mindset is very much one of a bottom-up approach and looking at each opportunity, and looking at do it, uh, how do we help bring that opportunity to life? Will it deliver safe, secure, and reliable energy in the most cost-effective way for the end energy user? And if we can answer that question in the affirmative, we think we're contributing to creating good long-term community assets, um, which, which we think will ultimately support the energy transition. Well, we look forward to seeing your next um, development and next announcements and, um, and also the delivery of your next project. So, uh, Daniel Burrows um, from um, EQ Energy, um, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast.
Good on you. Thank you, Giles. And I think we might go and hurry back and uh, get some warmth. It's absolutely freezing out here. And uh, we'll be back with part two of uh, Energy Insiders in a moment with David Leach. Welcome back to part two of the Energy Insiders podcast and uh, joining me is David Leach from ITK. David, I trust you are well. Giles, I'm well. Trust all the, uh, our audience as well uh, and uh, lots, lots to talk about as usual. Well, look, that's right. Yes, we've just done the interview with uh, Daniel. I did the interview with Daniel Burrows from Eku Energy. Um, interesting stuff there about what he talked about their plans. I mean, they're a new player in the Australian battery storage market, but obviously got big plans, three big battery projects on the way. And it was interesting to sort of see his observations about how to grow that market and the fact that the battery costs have been pretty wild over the last couple of years, but seem to be trending down now. Um, it's probably worthwhile, David, I think, to sort of talk about um, AGL. Now, we're speaking to each other on the Friday morning. We've seen the announcements and the presentations from AGL. We haven't actually been to the whole sort of Investor Day talkies. But um, what are your initial impressions from what's been revealed? Uh, look, it's an incremental approach uh, that AGL's adopting. They, they have a, they're clearly signalling that they're going to get out of their Bayswater Coles station in 2030 to 2032 an intention to um, exit Luoyang in Victoria by 2035. Um, I don't know that those targets will wildly thrill the Grok shareholding. Um, they seem a bit slow to me, particularly in Victoria. Uh, they're also looking at their retail, and they plan to replace that essentially with wind and solar that they're going to buy via PPA for the most part. Plus, they're going to build their own um, firming batteries, uh, and uh, basically, typically around their existing power stations uh, as they close and use the transmission there, just as at Hazelwood. On the retail side of things, they, they have to get out of um, their gas retailing over time, and they have developed a new strategy, I suppose, or new marketing labels around household electrification. But what I don't see is the kind of financial incentives that I, I was looking for to encourage their gas customers, their retail customers, to move away from gas and into electricity. Uh, you know, these big gin tailors are in the best place to do that. They own the relationship with the, with the households for gas and with the right programs, they, they could definitely help them into, into electricity. Well, the um, the Asia presentation certainly notes um, that electric electrification is happening. It's talking about an extra 25 terawatt hours a year of demand from electrification, particularly in households. It does talk about sort of gas demand declining because of the electrification, but it also talks about the health of its gas business. Um, but um, yes, it's um, yes. I, I think actually offering incentives is probably a bit too far from them, even though um, the presentation does talk about sort of helping us on in our life, sort of lifestyle changes and electrification, electric vehicles and things like that. So, you know, from coal company to lifestyle choice. Um, yes, yes, and they're treating electricity as a service rather than as a commodity, which I think is the right approach. But, you know, operationalising that and turning it into profits uh, um, it takes time. The, the other uh, comment I would make, and the strategy that AGL is adopting is, is similar to one that the big gen tailors seem to be adopting, that is to own the firming, the batteries and stuff, but to buy in the wind and the solar. And my primary criticism of that is that 
in the end, about 85% of the, uh, of the um, volume that will be delivered will be the bulk, wind and solar. And if you're not in the building and development of that game in a serious way, you're, not, you're unlikely to get any comparative advantage. So I think the companies that focus on the building of wind and solar will be the ones uh, that end up uh, owning the market in the longer term. That, 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 that's, that's, that's my opinion. I'm just wondering, though, if, they, if, by, if, if by owning the firm and controlling the firm, they think they, they, they control the prices. Well, they, they, clearly they think that's uh, going to be the case. But uh, look, we'll have to see how it plays out. But, you know, no, it's, it's not, not particularly, particularly ambitious, ambitious targets from AGL, is what I would say, relative to the scale of, say, the Queensland plan or the total New South Wales. And, you know, of their renewable program, they don't have anything for Queensland. It's all based in New South Wales and Victoria and to a lesser extent in South Australia, nothing even in Tasmania. You know, it's very geographically focused, really. Interesting. Well, just to recap on the battery plans, um, they've just sort of commissioned or sort of formally opened the Torrens Island battery. They say that Broken Hill is just about completed and will start in the first quarter of the next financial year, so the next three months. They're saying that they're fast-tracking Liddell. I'm not too sure whether the fast-tracking is quite true, but anyway, they're going to make a decision about Liddell battery by the end of the year. They seem to think they're going to get support from Marina on that, and they've also sort of confirmed that they're looking seriously at a battery in Tamago, 500 megawatts, four hours, and talk about two other batteries, which we don't know the identity, on Queensland and um, New South Wales. But another observation, David, I'd make is that the presentation really talks about the ability to extract value from short-term storage. So storage about four hours or less, and they see that there's very little, there's more capital cost and less value in longer-term storage, so pumped hydro. And I think this is a really interesting observation. I think it's dawning on the rest of the market that this is the case. And I'd invite you to make some observations now because you wrote a really interesting piece this week, and I recommend readers do have a look at it, about the Queensland um, plan, which was sort of unveiled in the last week. And it was really very interesting, but it just reveals some very big costs about their massive pumped hydro projects and questions that you have about the value. Uh, yes, Giles. Well, I, I think it's become clear that the big, longer-term seasonal storage, if you like, uh, isn't something that the private sector is willing to step up to. There's just not enough revenue from the insurance capability that it provides, the capacity uh, to really justify the cost. And the, the Barumba plant is uh, announced by the Queensland government. That's a, that's a 2,000 megawatt, 2 gigawatt plant with 24 hours of storage at, at uh, $14 billion. And it's not clear to me whether that includes the associated transmission. I've got a dreadful feeling that it doesn't. Uh, and um, that's pretty much double the cost that AEMO estimated that pumped hydro would cost. And it, it's of that duration. And the, you can't get much value, as we've just been discussing, out of most of those hours, most of the time. As the market develops, on the average day, you're really only going to need firming uh, for about three or four hours. Most of the rest of it, if we have the right wind and solar mix, will be done by wind and solar. Then there will be the droughts when you'll need this 24-hour storage and, and whatever. But as I say, hard to get a return. And yet the Queensland government um, uh, program, which has 25,000 megawatts of wind and solar, plus two big pumped hydro projects, plus the transmission, 
doesn't really leave any room for shorter duration storage uh, in, in, in their idea of it. Whereas everyone else that does the planning, including the private sector and AEMO and the ISP, had much more of a focus on, you know, firming during the day rather than seasonal firming. So to my mind, uh, you know, the total cost of the project in Queensland is up around $90 billion now, maybe more if they, if they build it all. And if you do the arithmetic, you'll find you need an electricity price uh, um, well over $100 to really justify that if you were a commercial operator. So, you know, Queensland has these fantastic wind and solar resources, but I hope Queenslanders end up getting the, um, the benefit that they truly can provide. So it seems to me like they're, sorry. It seems to me like they're falling into the same sort of vanity projects that um, had Malcolm Turnbull um, sort of committing to Snowy Hydro um, all those years ago. So if they do need, um, if we do need seasonal storage, we do need twenty-four hour storage at some scale. Um, what are you suggesting that we, it should actually be at a smaller scale and it just doesn't need that, that sort of level of capacity? How do you provide that, or are there other technologies? Well, I, you know, Giles, we all have our own ideas, but this is where the role of state governments and private sector could be carefully thought about because when you have the state government owning everything, um, you end up with only one piece of groupthink, if you like, rather than letting the market kind of work out what is the optimal solution. There probably is a role for a government long duration pumped hydro. We've just said the private sector doesn't want to provide that. But there's probably also a role for a whole bunch of other sectors technologies that could provide this daily storage more attractively. So for instance, in pumped hydro, the round trip efficiency is about 75% typically, uh, whereas batteries, it's 85%. So, you know, in the daily market, um, batteries can arguably be cheaper um, uh, in variable cost uh, and need less, less energy. Uh, than pumped hydro uh, and, and, and probably less transmission because you can often put batteries closer to where the demand is. Uh, there's a whole lot of things that go into it, but I just think uh, uh, a more, frankly, market-based approach, uh, more private sector involvement, if you like, but, but certainly a wider portfolio uh, would, might benefit Queenslanders. Yes, and, and possibly a little bit, uh, a tad less monumentalism. Um, it is actually interesting sort of talking to a bunch of people when I visited the Hazelwood um, uh, battery opening. Um, and it was kind of interesting to sort of see the, um, the battery there. I've got to say, it must have been warmer sitting inside a coal-fired power station than out in the windswept plain looking at a couple of battery modules. But um, certainly there's a lot of expectation that batteries are going to be, have to be deployed and commissioned quite quickly to fill in the transmission gaps that we've actually been talking about over the last couple of episodes, well, for months and months and probably years, actually. Uh, it's now clear that with all those delays and there's big transmission projects and all those little difficulties going around there, that maybe battery storage, particularly put onto um, distributed networks, um, maybe some incremental upgrades which have kind of, of the kind that's already been identified by the New South Wales might be the way to go. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out over the next sort of six months, six to 12 months, uh, particularly in the design maybe of the capacity investment uh, mechanism and whether that actually approaches or whether it's have to go back to the states to sort of say, okay, we can't build that transmission line here for, for at least another five years. We need something because we've got to build that bulk wind and solar that you keep on talking about. Let's get some more batteries in there just to increase the capacity, at least over the short term. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, <laughs> the big pumped hydro station may reduce the risk once it's built, but until it's built, you're you're relying on some future single single source asset. Uh, whereas you could build lots and lots of batteries of shorter duration, like the Hazelwood one, uh, in the short term, and then add on to them uh, as the as the need grows. But on top, we we shouldn't overly focus on the firming side of things. The point I make over and over again is that the main objective of all the programs should be to get the bulk energy delivery and that does require within and state transmission and interstate links to get the portfolio benefits. We need to get the wind farms built. We need to get the solar plants built. And and to me, this was this kind of the disappointing aspect of the, of the AGL announcement. That, you know, they announced uh, 500 megawatts or whatever it is of a Rye Park, uh, but Rye Park's, you know, really well under construction. I want to see new wind farms getting built uh, at, at a much faster pace than they actually are. Yeah, and of course we had we heard recently from the Clean Energy Council that there were no new um, sort of financial commitments to to wind and solar farms in the first quarter of um, of the year, and I'm not too sure whether there's been much more in the second quarter. No, uh, other than the New South Wales government PPAs, which keeps coming through. Look, you know, speaking as a New South Welshman, I personally prefer the New South Wales approach, but I don't want to get into a a t-shirt colour type of debate. Look, I think that's probably rounds up the episode for this week. So, look, thank you very much to Daniel Burrows from Echo Energy for taking some time when we visited the Hazelwood Battery. Really interesting interview. Thank you, David, for your observations on AGL and Queensland. Um, in particular, and thanks to all the listeners out there. Um, great to get your feedback. Uh, great to bump into some people um, during the visit to Melbourne and, um, and getting the positive feedback on the podcast. And thanks, of course, to our sponsors, Pylon and Evergen. And we'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use solid design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.